0: We have Jacob Wagaspack.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely excited uh, to get back to tailgating season and, and get a bowl of jambalaya or some gumbo on a cold day.
0: It was 100 to 102. Once he got me 3 2, it was ridiculous.
2: Welcome to another episode of Digging In with JPR and CBA. I'm your host, as always, Nick Ashbourne. And today, our guest on the show is Jacob Wagaspack, uh, one of the up-and-comers in the Blue Jays rotation who's going to be fighting for spots going forward. We're going to get to talk to him about that amazing start he had against the LA Dodgers and some of the things that he's been doing that have really opened some eyes, I think. Going into the season, he was someone, you know, we knew that he was in the air and loop trade and things like that, but I don't think he was on the radar for too many people, and he's really surprised so far.
0: Yeah, no, he's been good. Uh, I want to kind of break into his background because he started at Ole Miss but he was a starter. He was a bullpen guy and didn't get used a ton until his junior year. And then his junior year, he got drafted and then entered as a reliever. And then they eventually converted him to a starter. So I want to know uh, what the deal with that was is in the process. Because I think that he's been a guy that maybe has had to prove himself and continue to prove himself. Uh, and now is getting a chance and, and doing well. But he's he, this is part of it, right? This is in September where you can either solidify yourself as a rotation piece for next year and kind of show uh, the Blue Jays' front office, like, hey, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to have this opportunity. Or, you know, could he be a guy because he has relieved some in the minor leagues and has done it, you know, throughout his career? Is he a reliever type? So I think this is a good time for him to really enjoy the process of, of solidifying himself as a major leaguer.
2: Yeah, he's really going to be part of the whole proving grounds that September is going to represent for a lot of these guys. For some guys like Bichette and Vladi, we know that they're part of the future and it's just about getting experience. But for other guys, you're really fighting for a role on the 2020 team. I know that'll happen in spring training as well, but it's going to happen in September and he's one of those guys that's going to be at the forefront of that. Before we get too far into Jacob, I wanted to talk a little bit about a piece that came out last week about Nick Cassianos and some of the comments he made to Bob Nightingale. Now, this is about players and analytics, and it's very easy for this conversation to devolve into, you know, is analytics good or bad? And, you know, what does it mean? Yada, yada, yada. That debate has been had a million times, and I, I don't really want to go there. What I am interested in is players' attitudes towards analytics because I think we kind of know where general managers and teams are at. I think that most of the public is, you know, moving in that direction, but players have a different, different attitude towards it. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes and then JP, I want to talk about what uh, your attitude towards analytics was when you were a player and how you think it's changed because I know the players today that you talk to a lot and that I talk to as well have a different view on it. And so it's a bit interesting to see Cassiano say some of these things. So, for example, the movie Moneyball, that was sort of the inter- introducing this idea of analytics to fans. Obviously, the movie was entertaining with Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt, but the way I look at it, what good did it do the A's? They still haven't won the World Series. So, I mean, that's an interesting one for me because I think the A's were so successful with the budget that they had that it's pretty hard to pick on them for not winning the World Series. For example, if you look at the L.A. Dodgers right now, like it's hard to debate that they've put together amazing team after amazing team and they haven't won the World Series. Playoffs can be kind of random in baseball and I don't think it's always the best team winning, so... I wouldn't take any credit away from the A's based on them not winning the world series. But do you think that's fair? Yeah,
0: I do. I I actually used to say kind of the same thing as everybody used to ask me, you know, what do you think about this money ball? What do you think about this money ball? I'm like, I don't really care. You're watching a movie about a team that didn't win. Like they, they just, they didn't win it. So to me, it didn't stand out as something that was tangible. I, I, that's, I felt the same way. And I feel like I'm sure a lot of baseball players feel the same way as, you know, you're talking about a time where they made a movie, and it's a cool movie because it teaches you what went on, but they didn't win. And so, as a, as a competitor, not that it's taking anything against the ways the the A's for doing what they did and with the role with the, with their um, excuse me, that the amount of money that they had to spend with their payroll and stuff like that. It's not taking anything away from them. It's more players going like, hey man, don't don't show me this this transcending game changing movie if they don't even win they didn't even win so that's kind of the way that that t- players look at it i think that that's not the whole story uh about you know you, you can debate it right like you just said they they did win they they made it to the playoffs and stuff like that and they they were involved with a winning team, but they did not win at all. So it is, it is debatable against other teams. But again, I just don't think that it was like, wow, they, they just blew the doors down off of everybody to make it that much of a big deal that this movie was like transcending in the analytical world. I think if
2: anything, it's more about what they have done that pertains to what the future of baseball was and the way people followed their example, it makes them important more so whether they won or lost. This next point by Castellanos is one that I find myself more in agreement with. And I think it's sort of a warning to, you know, quote unquote experts around the game, observers, writers, journalists. They have these analytics that come out of nowhere and they're supposed to predict how players are going to do and what they're going to do before they do it, Castellanos says. They have war, but when I talk to people at MLB Network and other places and ask how they come up with it, they have no idea. So this one is actually really interesting to me because I do think that people throw around statistics a lot because they're you know they're good tools, especially from a writing perspective. I know that, but I think it's also important to have an idea where these numbers are coming from if you're going to use them, and that's something that I've always, uh, you know, tried to take pride in: is that as an understanding of if I'm going to talk about this, I better know what I'm talking about. And I think that there's a lot of analysis that goes on where people use more advanced numbers and if you actually talk to them in person about the numbers they're throwing around they couldn't tell you that much about them and that that is a problem because that's what leads to people making bad takes and bad arguments is when they have statistics and they don't know how to use them like it's a tool all it is is a tool and if you don't know how to use that tool properly you can really mislead people or mislead yourself
0: yeah, I think, listen, he has a point, right? Look, we all, as players, you hear what war is, you hear that this person has the, you know, whatever point war and this career war, we know that it's wins above replacement, but what is it really, what are you breaking down? Are you breaking down, you know, what statistics? Because for way, the way I look at it is, is what happens if the guy in AAA is a better player than the guy that's, that's up there in the big leagues right now? And then if... Is that I mean, like, the, is that the wins above replacement? Because all of a sudden, I call up a Mike Trout who's a young guy, and their center fielder was X amount a win above the replacement. How do you know that? Like, Mike Trout doesn't pass that guy. I think I just think that you. It's a weird. Uh, I don't even know what it means in the sense of what's what statistics are used and players don't. And so I think that's where you kind of drop the the everything is is messed up between players and analytics not as a as a whole because of the lack of explanation and communication about what each thing means. Because I would say 90% of Major League Baseball players have no idea advanced metrics, don't understand what this means, what that means, what this means. And maybe some don't care to, but I also think that they should understand what's devaluing them or valuing them. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's something I agree with him on that sense of, of people can't explain what it is. But on the flip side, I also do think that there's value for analytics.
2: Yeah, if you're a player, I think it behooves you to to learn a little bit more about this, even if your approach when on actually between the lines is going to be very simple and that's, what's always worked for you learning about how you're being valued and how that affects your career and what other teams are valuing. Like that's something that's definitely worth knowing when you were playing, what level of analytics based instruction, were you given by hitting coaches, if any? Or not necessarily hitting coaches, but the coaching you were getting, how much did you feel that that was driven by analytics? Hitting
0: zero. Uh, pitching was where, especially with Tampa, Tampa was where, you know, analytically, they were explaining the ball up in the zone, and you start learning about spin rate, and you started realizing why they throw the fastball up and then every other pitch off of that. So I think that's, you know, where you started. That's where I started to hear, like, shape of the pitch and, you know, why this fastball is better in the top of the zone and not don't go to the corners because there's more value on the top and don't throw a slider, throw his curveball off of this pitch. You know, that's, that's stuff for me where I started tampos, where I learned it. And then that's kind of where I realized like, man, this is why this team is really good at pitching. I don't know if there's an analytical approach for hitting mechanics. And I don't think that it's possible to tell you the truth um, because there's too many, there's too much stuff that goes on. Like, I don't care the launch angle stuff, right? Everybody loves launch angle. You can't, as a player, try to hit 30-degree launch angle every time and, like, think about it because you can't because you you have to to face a fastball, sinker, cutter, curveball, slider, changeup. And I can't just go like, oh, I'm swinging at this pitch and I'm going to elevate it at 30 degrees. Like, you can say I'm going to try to lift it more, but analytically – Hitting, I don't think, is other than maybe approach-wise. Mechanically, there's nothing that can really go analytically for me as a hitter. I think a lot of the analytics come into how you pitch the guys and defense and stuff like that. But, I mean, even remember this, too, and this is just on on different metrics. Is remember, Adam Jones, we had Adam Jones. Remember, he talked about that all he learned was getting higher defensive uh, reps me- measurements were just keeping the runner from going to second base. So it didn't matter if the run scored. Let's say there was a man on second base. It doesn't matter about throwing the guy out at the plate. That didn't matter as much as keeping the guy from first to moving the second on that on that ball. And so that's where I think players need to know that because then all of a sudden he knows what grades him higher and what doesn't. I think that's that's why players need to know what, what's going on because they have to be able to play to what's going to give them more you know money in the pocket.
2: I think what's interesting today is – the difference in the players you'll find so there are certain players who are all in I know Daniel Murphy now on the Rockies is famous for this for kind of being like all in and almost evangelizing it to his teammates on the blue Jays an example of a guy for instance I talked to is Trent Thornton and when Trent Thornton has a start like he asks them the team to print out a list of all his pitches with the velocity with the vertical movement with the horizontal movement he showed it to me at his at his locker and it's like a it, it, honestly, it's, it looks hideous because it's just like a, a Microsoft Word list of pitches and it's like 100 pitches or whatever. Right? And But he will circle certain pitches. He'll be like, oh, well, I got a lot of vertical movement on that pitch. I'm going to go back in the video room and I'm going to watch that pitch and maybe see if there's a different way that I grip the ball or how my delivery looked. So I think it's interesting to see players engaging with it like that. And then at the same time, there's lots of players who are pretty indifferent to this stuff. And if their performance is good, I think that that's fine. If their performance isn't as good, I think that they should think about being a little bit more open-minded. But it's interesting for me to see the whole spectrum in an MLB locker room right now, uh, or a cl- clubhouse, sorry, an MLB clubhouse of how far this goes from one end to the other and how it's going to move over the next five to yeah, ten years. Yeah, but I mean,
0: here's... I think that you can analytically break down pitchers and pitches and pitch shapes. I don't think you can... You can analytically create a swing that's that's more consistent. It's a feel. Like think about Chris and Jelic. Yelich says he doesn't listen to any of that stuff. He's the best one of the best hitters in baseball. Like I just think hitting is so much of a feel thing. And now maybe you can try to flatten somebody's swing out, take away more of their uppercut, whatever it is. But there's no way that you can that you can just go like, hey this is my swing path, and this is how it's going to continue because if you have one swing path, you're going to have no job because pitchers are going to expose you. So you have to be able to adjust your swing as opposed to I can throw one fastball with and, and have a, a ton of rotation on it, whatever, a ton of spin so the ball doesn't come up, and I can continue to throw the top of the zone and be very successful with it, and I can shape a breaking ball off of that. Like For hitters, it's a lot tougher to – be able to just analytically think. Now again, I'm talking about mechanically and stuff like that. They can they can think analytically with pitchers and as, as far as hey, if he's going to shape, you know, if this pitch he just threw up, can I look for a breaking ball? They can they can maybe put the numbers together a little bit more on on approach, but it's so much feel on a swing that it's because there's so many the reason why it's the hardest thing to do in sports quote unquote is because there's so many intangibles. You have a pitcher who can vary his t- his his leg kick, like Strowman hold, go quick. Then he has all these different pitches. Then they can do all these different things at home plate. They can move one way. They can move the other. Plus, you don't know what's coming. So that's that's why hitting is is tough to analytically. I mean, I would say that that Murphy can talk about analytics and. T- but he's not, he's not a, a robot. You can't be a robot as a hitter. As a pitcher, you can almost be a, a guy who can just pitch versus like, on analytics in itself, hitting you can't. It's just not attainable. Well, there's also a difference between something that's
2: proactive and something that's reactive, right? If you're a pitcher, you can say... Uh, these are all the things I want to do. And you can almost pitch as if the hitter's not standing there. Like, oh, I'm going to pitch this. And if this is a ball, I'm going to pitch that. And this is, and you take the hitter's strengths and weaknesses into account, no doubt. But you're the one with the ball. You're the one with control. Whereas if you're a hitter, you don't get to control where the pitch is going to come in. You don't get to control what the pitch is. And I think that makes it so much harder to have the same level of precision in trying to, you know, optimize what you are as a hitter, because you're to some extent at the mercy of what's coming. One
0: hundred percent. That that's uh, that's as perfectly said as you can say it is. That's a pitcher can do whatever he wants, and he can continue to do whatever he wants and and pretend there's nobody there in the batter's box. That's what Trevor Bauer does. Trevor Bauer pretty much, if he throws a pitch up and away, he throws a breaking ball off of that same shape of that ball that came. So he's going off of his previous pitch, as opposed to as a hitter. You don't have that luxury. You don't know what's coming. You don't – there's no way that you can groove one swing and expect that that's what you're going to – if you do that, again, you're going to be out without a job. So that's where now you can maximize certain things. Tommy Pham, you can make adjustments. He's made adjustments. Swing path, all that stuff is different. I don't think that – but that's not analytical. That's just a feel. You can't can't replicate 30-degree launch angle every time off of a tee because it doesn't matter if you do it off a tee because, hey – newsflash, the ball ain't going to be on a tee when you're hitting. It's going to be higher. It's going to be lower. So if I groove one swing, and that's a 30-degree launch angle off of this pitch right here that's right down the middle, doesn't mean that I, I have the same exact swing on a fastball in or a fastball up or a breaking ball. Like, that's, that's why for me it's tough to do it analytically as a hitter. But pitching, you can definitely, and I learned it in Tampa Bay, they were very, very good at teaching – how to use your information and use it to the best of your ability, and that's why they're so good because they have their analytics is very advanced for pitching, and they've always been that. That's why they've won with guys that are not quote unquote superstars.
2: Well, it'd be interesting to talk to Jacob back a little bit about that because he's someone who has a really diverse repertoire. He's got the faster fastball, sinker cutter and then the three secondary pitches as well so we'll get into that with him we're going to be joined
0: by him right now first off can we just is wags what you go by because because ryan the pr he wrote to me wags or Are you is it wags
1: <laughs> yeah wags is definitely a lot easier okay wags is what i go by
0: all right, Wag. So my first question, first off, I I feel sad that you're an old Miss Rebel uh cuz uh, you know, SEC guy went to Tennessee, so it it kind of hurts a little bit. But this is not a baseball question out of the gate. Talk to me, are you are you a Saturday football guy cuz I knew that in the clubhouse back in the days, that was a huge topic was was what team you represented.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. Um I love I love college football, I love NFL. Um you know, I just I love football in general. So, um, you know, I'm obviously pulling for the Rebels, um, but I also pull for LSU as well, since they're in my backyard. All
0: right. And then when you were at Ole Miss, you know, I, I went and dug a little bit. Your first couple of years, you kind of were pitcher. You were a reliever starter. Then you you finished off your junior year, did well, got a lot more playing time. Then you get drafted to the Phillies, and the whole thing again, reliever, and then they converted you a starter. Do you think that because of having to go back and forth and figuring out what you're doing, what you're not, that that has been able to allow you to become a better pitcher to where you are today?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, because it's, it's really two different routines uh, when you're, when you're in the bullpen and when you're starting. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's valuable if you can learn those two, um, especially at an early age, you know, for me um, at Ole Miss, I was starting at first, like you said, and then, Went to the bullpen and um, kind of kind of flip-flopped when I got to, uh, to pro ball. I was relieving and then swapped over to starting. And so, um, yeah, I got to see both sides and, and kind of see what worked and what didn't, and uh, um, it's definitely helped me out up to this point.
2: I know that JP can talk SEC with you, you know, more or less all day, but this is a Blue Jays podcast. I want to talk a little bit about your work in a Blue Jays uniform so far. One thing that's really stood out to me about the way you pitch is just the variety in your repertoire. You've got the fastball sinker cutter, and then you've got the changeup slider curveball. There's not a lot of guys right now that throw six pitches. And it seems like I don't know exactly what the number is off the top of my head, but you throw each of them at least five or six percent of the time, which means that they're not just some random pitch. So how did you come across such a wide variety of pitches? And how do you think it's helped you in your career?
1: Um, I think, uh, once I started pro ball, my rookie year, um, I only had, I had a fastball, a changeup and, you know, a subpar, uh, blurb, if you will. And, um, you know, I had a couple coaches, um, look at how I was gripping the baseball and, and made a couple adjustments as far as finger pressure and, um, where I'm holding the ball and stuff. So, uh, that's where I developed a cutter. And then, um, you know, just, just trial and error um you know seeing what other guys throw and how they grip it and um ended up developing a slider and uh over the years um you know the way I describe it is none of my stuff my my off-speed stuff is really like above average you know you you see guys you have the the sweeping curveballs and the hard sliders and um, I don't see mine as that. So I kind of have to, uh, if I'm going through a lineup, I kind of have to throw a lot of stuff at them um, just to keep them off balance. And that's how I try to describe it.
2: There's one outing you've had as a Blue Jay that's obviously stood out above all the others. It's the that game you had against the Dodgers where you went seven innings, gave up just the one hit against this team. That's, you know, it's a juggernaut. And in today's baseball, we have a couple of these super teams. That's absolutely one of those teams. What went right for you in that outing and how does that affect your confidence going forward, being able to shut down one of these teams that's kind of head and shoulders above the rest of, you know, 70% of the league?
1: Yeah. um, Well, they, they roll out a lot of left-handed hitters. And um, for me, since I'm, I'm pretty, I'm cutter heavy and started to throw a a sinker a lot as well. um, You know, it's, it's, I don't mind whenever I see a lot of lefties in the lineup. So uh, for one that was good for me and then um you know Jano behind the plate he's 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 a he's a great catcher behind the plate and uh you know we're always dialed in um whether it's Hamm or McGuire, and um you know we go over the hitters before each inning what we want to do but um i don't know you know it was it was just a, a really cool atmosphere and um and that was the first time i got to pitch in that in front of that many people and um you know it's so loud in that stadium and um you know it it kind of does the reverse effect you know when you're out there you got just you gotta really zone in and and try to calm yourself down and um, and be in control and you know that's all I try to do. I try to just take deep breaths and and relax a little bit and uh, and make pitches.
0: We were talking about analytically uh, earlier before you came on just different informations and one of the things that I remember with the Tampa Bay Rays is how guys that are taller. Some guys shorten their deliveries, which actually makes their ball look slower. But if you use your length, like a Glass Now or one of those guys, you can actually make the ball feel like it's harder for a hitter. Do you, how much do you dive into analytics?
1: Um, I'm not really, um, I'm not diving in too far into it as far as like mechanics and spin rates and stuff. Um, I've looked at it, but, um, I more so look at like the scouting reports and you know information they provide us on the hitters, but I haven't really gotten too far into uh, into the pitching aspects of it. Um, you know, maybe that's something I could look at in the off season, but not so much yet.
0: No, and that's not an issue. That's uh, there's different guys. We were talking about it before analytics. Some guys it works, some guys it goes against. But my next question is, I'm gonna actually re- reverse because. One thing that we always ask guys that made their debut in a season is how it happened. So how did you find out about the, the old call up?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I was, uh, uh, I was with the Buffalo team and we were playing in Lehigh Valley. Um, and, uh, I had gotten traded over last year from the Phillies. So I spent a lot of time in Lehigh Valley and, and I had a host family there and, um, you know, I know a lot of people over there, so it was really cool for me to get called up uh, from Lehigh Valley, just because I could celebrate with my host family, and you know they were all jacked up. Uh, but anyway, I was I was in the dugout, wasn't pitching that day, and um, the trainer called me over in like the fifth inning, and he was like, uh, "Hey, go talk to Meach." And you know, when that happened, you're like, uh, "All right." <laughs> so so I went over to talk to Meach, and he was like, "Hey, they're gonna uh, they're gonna call you up and." um you know we're not sure if you'll be active uh tomorrow or the next day but you know just get ready to pitch so um actually Schaefer was with me he kind of had the same ordeal so we we went and packed our stuff and um left the game and you know took a uh took a taxi to the airport
2: one of the things that's interesting about your time in the minor leagues you know this season even the previous season is that you didn't have the same level of success at AAA a that you're having here in the majors. And that's something that people don't expect, but it does happen from time to time. And I'm wondering if you feel like there's been any change like since you've come to the majors, has there been coaching that's helped you? Or do you feel like you're pitching better now than you were uh when you were in Buffalo?
1: Um yeah, I I would say as a whole, um yes, I think I've I've been throwing a little better and I just um you know, I think that's just uh that's just the pressure coming off your shoulders, you know, for me, um, you know, we always, we always talk about the journey that it takes to get to where we've gotten. And, um, you know, you have, you put that pressure on yourself that you've been working for this goal your whole life and, um, you know, you're doing everything in your in your power to get there. So you put that pressure on yourself and, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, you don't perform as well as you want. So for me, um, that was the case and you know, once I finally made it to the big leagues, it was like the pressure was off and I could just go out and pitch and um you know, not worry about if I had a bad outing or um you know, if I didn't get this guy out or, or whatever, you know, so I'm I'm really uh sometimes hard on myself. So um once I got to this level it was it was like, you know, let's just go out and pitch and um you know, whatever number the, the catcher puts down, let's do it. You know, it was it was kind of one of those things
0: you you said journey uh, in your last answer and you've had a different journey than most, right? You were undrafted. So talk about, cause I don't think many people understand uh, the process. So how did that work being undrafted and, and signing with the Phillies?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I was, uh, I was an SEC reliever, as you said. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought that I would get drafted where the relievers get drafted, um, you know, where in the lower 20 rounds or, Uh, close to that so that's kind of what I was expecting and um, you know for whatever reason it didn't really work out and um, you know I didn't get a call till really late so at that point I was like I'll just go back for my senior year and you know get my degree and take a shot next year and then um, a couple days went by and the Philly scout um, who I know pretty well and and he had called me and said hey you know this is this is the deal and um, you know it'll you'll get more money as a junior obviously and um you know senior signs all the all the stuff that goes on with senior signs you know you don't have that that big of a leash and all that stuff um but anyway so i kind of just weighed my options um at that point and um you know figured that i could i could go into pro ball and and pick up some new things and um and uh you know kind of just a, a change of scenery so um, that's what I did, and and I signed as uh, as an undrafted free agent, and uh, you know, told myself that I was gonna I was gonna do everything in my power to uh, you know learn from coaches and and soak up as much knowledge as I can.
2: Jacob Norman, the show we like to go beyond baseball a little bit to what people are into, what they do off the field and stuff you're a little bit of a trickier case in that. Cause I see that you got the private, I think all the social medias I saw out there were, you know, Twitter and Instagram <laughs> was all private. So you're a bit of a man of mystery. I was wondering if, uh, what the rationale behind that was. Cause I know a lot of people nowadays, especially younger players who come up are trying to brand themselves and put themselves out there. So what was the rationale behind that? And what are we all missing by not getting to see, uh, Jacob Wagsback's <laughs> Instagram?
1: Oh man, that's funny. Um, Yeah. You know, it's, it's really big right now, uh, the building your brand stuff and, and, you know, being really, really high up on social media. Um, for me, I don't know. I kind of just want to keep that stuff to myself right now. And, um, you know, um, there's also people that are pretty ruthless out there. So, you know, I don't want somebody, uh, you know, knowing what my parents look like or, or, you know, my girl or something, you know, so I've, I've kind of just, uh, you know, I don't want them to to get any, any, uh, any negativity as well. So, um, you know, I've kind of just kept it private and, um, I think eventually I'll, I'll probably change it, but you know, for right now, I'm just keeping that to myself.
0: All right. Well then, since you are keeping to yourself, when WAGS is, got the tunes on before a game, what, what kind of music would you be listening to or just any, any, every day, what kind of tunes do you listen to?
1: Um, I'm, I'm actually, I got a wide variety of music, but, uh, you know, I could do anything from classic rock to, um, to some Louisiana rap. You know, I could – some old school Louisiana rap. That's probably my best uh, – that's my, that's my best shot at, at getting ready for a game or getting ready for the day. Um, but then I could switch it over to some 90s country. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. man. I, I go with the flow with anything, and, and that's just kind of the guy I am.
0: What about food? You, you, you obviously, I'm sure you're on that jambalaya train.
1: Oh gosh, man! Um, I can't wait to get home and just get a big plate of uh, red beans and rice with some deer sausage, or man, anything my grandma cooks is that's what I eat. But um, yeah, I'm definitely excited uh, to get back to tailgating season and and get a bowl of jambalaya or some gumbo on a cold day.
0: So, so sorry, Nick, my last one, and then so that means that you're a hunter because if if you're eating anybody that says deer sausage that means that on the winter you're out in the woods is this correct
1: oh man i hate to tell you but uh i i let i let my uncles go out and kill the meat and then no! <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a smart, yeah, not smart smart way to do it
1: you know, yeah I, I do a little bit of fishing but um you know i i usually uh i usually stay around the city parts
2: I feel, I feel you, Jacob. I'm a, I'm a city boy myself. I haven't done much much hunting, but I've done a lot of eating. Uh, before we let you go, <laughs> you touched on it a little bit with the name, because I remember the Players Weekend thing came out and all the nickname lists came out, and then for you, it just said back. I was like, wow, what a disappointment! Like you can't get anything right. out of that name. It's just back. So I want to know your nickname journey. Has it always been Wags from the beginning? Because I know that. There, You know there's a lot of opportunities there when you've got that many syllables in play
1: yeah, you know and and what people don't know is there was some kind of miscommunication on that, and um whether we did it in spring training or um or you know they they checked like earlier in the year i then I, I must not have been there as my start day or something, so um it was supposed to say wag, but um uh, yeah, there was a miscommunication somewhere um but yeah i I've, I've been WAGs for a while and um some of my Phillies buddies, they they go with Swaggy or Swaggis Pack, you know. Um actually Devin White, um, he, he called me G Wagon when I was in Buffalo. And that was a new one for me. So um but yeah, that's about it.
2: All right. We appreciate you uh, you know, giving us the answer to that mystery, even if there are gonna be some mysteries that remain uh with you, Jacob, at least for the time being. Uh we appreciate you having you uh spending this time with us thank you yeah
1: thank you guys Uh, i really appreciate it enjoyed it i think
2: swaggis pack is like the most obvious one to go with out of all that like Like,
0: dude i i think i swaggis pack is sick i
2: like that you're gonna have to you're gonna have to
0: write you a piece on swaggis pack especially if he if he
2: really does love like the old school louisiana rap like if he comes out to the right to the right uh song with the name swaggis pack i think that will get people fired up
0: I think old school, when he says old school, that's Little Wayne. Yeah, for no, he He's not to, talking to, like old. Yeah, old. yeah, it yeah, could yeah be Generational. Like, it could
2: be like Birdman. Yeah, it's not. Uh,
0: that's old school for him because he was in like second grade. <laughs> scary. We're getting
2: old, Nick. All right, before we go, I did want to touch on one Blue Jays thing, which is the Justin Verlander no-hitter. Uh, I was there on Sunday. It was an incredible atmosphere. It was amazing to watch the fans kind of cheer for it in the ninth inning because everyone wants to see history. You know, third no-hitter from a guy, a guy who has a, you know, he's, he's a surefire Hall of Famer. To say you were there when a uh, Verlander no-hitter happened, like that's a cool thing to say as a baseball fan. So I, it was fun to watch people get on board with that. Absolute chaos after the game in terms of covering it. You know, everyone running everywhere and like – I remember the first thing that happened, we went to the manager's office for Houston. So no one went to the Toronto side. I don't think Charlie Montoyo might have been sitting alone like two guys. I have no idea who went to that press conference. Uh, and then Hinch was like, oh, like there was one of you here yesterday and there's like 20 Toronto people there. It was chaotic. It was just a really cool thing to be a part of, uh, you know, in even a very small way. I was just wondering if you what your impressions were of that no hitter. It's one of the best ones you're going to see with the 14 Ks and one walk.
0: Like, and there, he didn't even really need some big defensive save either. He just continues to get better, man. And when you talk analytics, I think that that's a big. Houston has been a a team that can, I mean, turn around guys. I think. Listen in in. Detroit, he had his little bit of struggles as of late, but I think that was more because of a core issue, and then he finally got it fixed. He had that core problem, which obviously would hurt any athlete, but they just have something that they they do really well, man, and I think that they they are a team that can tell you, hey, this is what I think you need to do, and this is how I think you need to pitch to maximize your ability. Garrett Cole has, has been unbelievable. So I think this is something for him that it's been fun to watch his develop. I mean, he's always – listen, this guy, I was a part of the no-hitter he threw against the Blue Jays. He actually walked me in the seventh inning to break up his perfect game, and that was it. Both times, he's only had one walk. So, you know, it's it's part of it, right? Like, this guy's got A, A-plus stuff, and he has the ability to do it every single, single time out. It's about it lining up, but he continues to get better. I mean, his velocity was 97 at the end of the game, which is adrenaline, you know, pumping, but – He's got four really good pitches, and now he's learned how to really pitch. Like it when he got to the league as a younger guy, he was 97, 98 with a hammer of a curveball, slider. Now he's got, you know, he's locating a slider. He's throwing his fastball to all four quadrants. He's got a really good changeup after that, and that's what I think. It's, just, it's special to watch because, uh, unfortunately, that's the second one in the Rogers Center, which is not fun to be a part of as a team but for fans and anybody else you like you said you realize man you're watching a guy who's gonna be a hall of famer and then you're watching it live and being a part of it so it's pretty special and you know I I mean you just kind of have to tip your hat sometimes as a player and as a hitter and know that that's why that guy is making the money he's making and why he's a hall of famer and why he's special get your hits off the other guys
2: one of the things that really stood out to me was the fastball because I was looking back when I was writing about it at that one that you were part of. And in that one, he was averaging 97 on his fastball and he got as high as 102. I mean, that's how crazy Verlander was. You know, well, that's how, and that's, that,
0: that was an at bat and my at bat, by the way, you can continue, I don't mean to interrupt, but that at bat with me that he walked me, he, it was a hundred to 102. Once he got me three, two and I fouled off some pitches and was able, was able to walk. But, it was ridiculous. All right, keep... Sorry, continue. So, but I forget how many swinging strikes he had exactly with that
2: fastball in that game, but it wasn't many. It was like four or five, even though the fastball was so ridiculous. And then now, his fastball is more reasonable. It's like it's more 94, 95, and he gets 15 swinging strikes with it because now he knows where and how to locate it, and he... He's kind of taken the step beyond since he's gone to Houston. The step beyond being this sort of physical beast and specimen with this amazing fastball and curveball, and he's added a lot of knowledge and he's added, you know, the ability to optimize his stuff. And so it's kind of funny for me to imagine if he was pitching the way he pitches now with some of the stuff that he used to have, like. I mean, it's hard to say he could have been better because he was a goddamn MVP in 2011, but it it makes me wonder because it's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing too. I think that that struggle kind of helped him realize that he couldn't just throw it, right? That he had to be able to pitch a little bit differently. So I think everything happens with a purpose. And so he might not be the person he is and the pitcher he is today on the mound. And I think that's what's enabled him to be able to dial it down and pitch at 94 93 94 92 93 94 like being able to pitch back and forth in those numbers and locate and maybe sink the ball a little bit maybe force him up to then get those swinging those swings on the fastball where before you didn't swing at the fastball a lot and swing and miss and all that stuff because you were so geared up for it that when he threw you a slider you were swinging and missing you were that's what 100 on the board makes you do as a hitter you have to try to cheat to the fastball and then all of a sudden he can get you out in those swings with the breaking ball but now he's pitching like you said at a more reasonable speed and so now he's learning how to pitch and that's the biggest thing is that's why he continues to get better is because he has evolved his game but still has very above average stuff and that's that's something that's really fun to watch plus he's got kate upton which i think has helped him out too Okay, so we're gonna finish with the Would You Rather.
2: I'm often, you know, I, I, I used to write some of these myself and then I got into just looking at Reddit because they have a page for this. So I wanna give them all the credit in the world. And I was scrolling through the Reddit Would You Rather page the other day and I came across this one and it was so bizarre, JP. It just It just popped off the page for me. This is by far the weirdest one I've ever seen. I don't even know if it's necessarily like the greatest dilemma I've ever heard of, but it was so bizarre that I I thought we had to give it a go. All right. Would you rather have the head of a goat and be the greatest guitarist of all time or be the most attractive person in existence, but you smell like gasoline 100% of the time and you can only walk backwards? (laughs) <laughs> I let that, that is... let that sink in for a second,
0: dude. What this is the, this is like this is so dumb. This is the dark but, corners of the internet. Oh my goodness gracious, Nick! This is like this is like absurdity. Um, I I, I, I guess I'd have to be the goat. I don't wanna I don't wanna freaking I, I don't <laughs> I don't care about attractiveness. If you smell like gasoline, I gotta walk backwards everywhere, like. That sucks. Um, yeah, the goat, I guess, because then I can live somewhat of a normal life. It might be by myself. I mean, I I might have to not have anybody that would ever want to be with me, or maybe they would. Because I think they would being if you're the, the greatest guitarist greatest of all time. Of all time, yeah. Maybe maybe that's I can sh- the old string playing will get them going. But I I mean I don't know for sure. I would I would say yes. That would be me because there ain't no chance. That I want to smell like gasoline and have to walk backwards every single way. I mean, where you come up with these and where you find these is a little bit insane to me. But this one is this one is a a weird one. But I'll go with the goat, and that's my answer. So that's that's what uh,
2: our producer Zub said because he said that you know the goat head would actually be kind of rock and roll, like in the right kind of metal circles, people might. You know, they'd be think you were cool. You you'd no doubt be a celebrity. Like, of course, you'd be a huge celebrity as like the goat man, who's an amazing axe handler. Uh, I I think I went the other way because what I would do is as the most attractive man alive, I would carve out a very lucrative modeling career. Like I would, I would make money hand over fist as I don't actually, I don't know what the top male models make, but I'm, I'm sure they make good money. So that would be step one is make a lot of money as a male model. And then step two would be to kind of the great thing about the internet and finding people nowadays is you can kind of put out there exactly what you're looking for and someone in the world is going to find it. So if you're the most attractive man in the world and you say like, I'm looking for love, you a either have to like not care that I smell like gasoline, which I don't know, it'd be tough for people to get by. But at the same time, people get used to anything. Like if you're a garbage worker, like that smells bad to us, but you do it every day and then you get used to it. So I think that could happen. But also... Don't forget, don't sleep on, JP, all the people out there that don't have a sense of smell. And I've got to believe that one of them would be open to a relationship with the most attractive man in the world because they don't have to deal with his biggest negative quality. Yeah, you got to walk backwards, though. So, yeah, that's that's the part that's going to hurt. I think that, you know, I I'd probably... Could you, scoot? Could
0: you get on a scooter and scoot forward? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I think scooting might be against the sort of spirit of the question, but you can definitely drive places. You could, you know, I'd probably become lazier, I guess. And you could do backwards treadmill for. Actually, I don't know. I think there are ways around that, and there's just no way around being a goat man. It you're just society's not going to accept you. Like as much as they might think you're cool, and you'll be this figure, you'll just never quite be accepted by society. And I, for that reason, I just don't think I'm
0: willing to become a goat man. I could see your, I could see your Tinder is, uh, <laughs> if you're in a gas station attendant, please reach out to me. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure t-
2: there's a lot of beautiful people who are gas station attendants who have been looking for an amazing supermodel who smells like gasoline. There's, there's someone for everyone in the world, JP, but maybe not for goat men. And that's why I'm going <laughs> to, going to go with the alternative, but I appreciate you entertaining that. Cause when I saw it, I was like, this is insane but you got to go there.
0: Yeah, it was it was ridiculous, but uh, so was your reasoning, but I'll just leave it at that. All right, that's going to be it for us this
2: week. Uh, we appreciate you guys continuing to listen in, subscribe, leave reviews, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're finding us, we appreciate you and we will be doing this for you again next week.